Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Coach Connor. Six or seven years ago, ketone use among professional athletes was a poorly kept secret, as rumors were that teams were using them to fuel some impressive victories. Rightfully, everyone has been asking, do ketones help performance? The truth is, the answer is a bit boring. It's the word, maybe. What's more exciting are all the other questions about ketones. Does taking ketones help our recovery and prevent overtraining? Or how about what impacts do ketones have on conditions like cancer and neurological diseases? Joining us today to answer these questions is Professor Brendan Egan from the Dublin City University in Ireland. Dr. Egan is a top researcher and recently published a 40-page review summarizing the current research on the performance effects of ketones. Beyond that, he's interested in the health impacts ketones may have. Joining Dr. Egan, we'll hear from pros Alex Howes and Kiel Reinen, who have seen ketone use in the pro peloton, as well as Starla Tedegreen, who has been using ketones in her own training. We'll also hear from Dr. Paul Larson, who has investigated this question on his own. So, let's learn the difference between endogenous and exogenous ketones, and let's make you fast. While the basic principles are the same, there's a big difference between coaching professional and age group athletes. Professional athletes are the elite, the 1% of the sport, the best of the best. These athletes devote every day to training and demand the most from themselves and from their coaches. In our newest release for The Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel, we explore the art and science behind coaching professional athletes. Check out The Craft of Coaching Module 13 at FastTalkLabs.com today. Well, welcome, Dr. Egan. It's a pleasure to meet you. We're really excited to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for the invite. It's something I like talking about, so I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, and I get to say, I mean, quick step back, you know, we were going through the research on ketones. We were trying to find, you know, what's, we don't want to just do the standard episode here of do they help performance, do they not help performance? We're looking for a bit of a, a twist on this. So we were going through the research, and I was really impressed how often your name came up. This is really an area that you seem to know a lot about. Well, hopefully I can convince you that over the next hour or so. No, we, we've, been, uh, yeah, we've been active in this area for six or seven years now, and some of our work has been uh, obviously focused on the performance side, but um, through a couple of reviews and different bits and pieces, we've also been in, interested in the more therapeutic applications. So hopefully we can get time to cover uh, both of those angles today. And it seems like you mentioned six or seven years. It seems like that's the bulk of the research that's occurred is in the past six or seven years, which is really interesting on this topic because you can go back to 2019, read some um, reviews, some meta-analysis, and then fast forward to today, there's been a, almost a tripling of research in understanding in that time. So this is a conversation that kind of needs to continue to happen in real time because you know, if anybody publishes a review in 2022, there's already a dozen more studies that came out in 2023. It is very fast moving at the moment. And um, you're right, like 2016 was when the first big paper, let's say, came out in terms of exercise performance and this uh, ketone monoester, as I'm sure we'll, we'll define as we go along here. We wrote a fairly large review that was published in late 2016 online and then obviously the 2017 citation. But th at that point, th those are kind of the two main articles, I think, that would have uh, stimulated people's interest in, in the area. 
And I suppose the other big change that's happened over the last number of years, and I mean, it was the precedent was set with the 2016 Cox et al. paper in cell metabolism. That's when the ketone monoester became commercially available shortly thereafter. And that's really been, it's the kind of the greater commercial availability in the last five years, let's say, that's really amplified the amount of research that's been done in this space. And it's a, it's a lot of people find it quite an interesting topic. And, uh, you know, there's a good bit of hype around and there's a lot of press. And so, you know, that, that gets people interested as well. So that kind of leads to a good starting point for this whole conversation. So we're going to be focusing on exogenous ketones. So there's endogenous and exogenous. Endogenous are ketones that are produced by your body. Our focus, as I said, is the exogenous, which are ketones that you consume. So let's talk a little bit about the different types. First, can you tell us a little bit about what type of ketones are found in the body? And I know probably the primary one is BHB. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So when we talk about ketone bodies, we're referring to three molecules uh, in this case, which are acetoacetate, beta-hydroxybutyrate, which we refer to as BHB, I'm sure, throughout this uh, conversation. And the other one is, is acetone. So as you mentioned there, these are produced naturally within the body through a process known as ketogenesis. And that's a a metabolic pathway that takes uh, place in, in the liver almost exclusively. And the, the end product um, is acetyl, are the three ketone bodies, but it turns out that beta-hydroxybutyrate is the one that circulates at the greatest concentration within the, uh, within the blood. And that's the one that tends to be the focus of a lot of the measurement and a lot of the research that's, that's being done in, in this space. So we have these naturally produced ketone bodies, and um, they're, they're, as I said, they're being produced all the time. They tend to be amplified, then their the rate of ketogenesis is amplified in scenarios where there's low glucose availability in, in the body. So these are scenarios like a low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet, as the, as the name suggests. Extending that out to something like a fast would be a little bit more severe, let's say, and then a starvation type response. And I suppose to just take a step back, that's where a lot of the initial interest in the, in ketone bodies in the in the 60s was the fact that they are clearly amplified as a survival mechanism in scenarios where you have this low glucose availability and that was demonstrated in these starvation studies. So um, that's the kind of the big picture from the um, endogenous production point of view. But then we have exogenous sources of, of ketone bodies and the so-called exogenous ketone supplement class. And these are kind of... Broadly speaking, there's two ways that you can um, consume these exogenous ketone uh, supplements. One is as a, as, a, as a ketone body itself, and that you know effectively goes into the bloodstream and elevates ketone bodies. Uh, the other way is to ingest a ketogenic precursor, and that will then be uh, metabolized by the liver to produce beta-hydroxybutyrate within the body and therefore elevate ketone body concentrations. And then the so-called ketone ester uh, scenario is where you do both. You effectively ingest a molecule that has a ketogenic precursor molecule and a ketone body, and they're bound together or esterified. And that's the the so-called monoester or the diesters that people talk about. So that, again, there's a, underneath that broad uh, category of exogenous ketone supplements, we can probably talk about those different ketone precursors, ketone salts, ketone esters, they all have slightly different properties, but that's essentially what we're talking about when we say exogenous ketone supplements. And for our audience, when you you hear precursors, probably the most common one out there that you're going to see in all the supermarkets is uh, the medium chain triglycerides. That's your MCTs. You, you might see coconut oil all over the shelves. 
But there's an interesting point to make there, which is that um, even medium-chain triglycerides or medium-chain fatty acids, there are a number of fatty acids within that category, and they have slightly different chain lengths, and those chain lengths will have slightly different ketogenic properties. So in the case of coconut oil, you have a lot of lauric acid there, which is it's a C10 or C12. It depends on the composition of the coconut oil. But that is not as good a, a, a ketogenic precursor as C6 or C8. Uh, and so, again, there's small nuances there that, that certain companies are taking advantage of. And then the other point maybe to make about the ketogenic precursors are um, uh, this molecule butanediol. And so butanediol is a, a kind of a, it's a molecule related to an alcohol and it's, it's, it's um, processed uh, through the liver and produces, as I said, uh, ketone bodies. But the reason that's of interest is because butanediol tends to be the molecule that is associated with the ketone body when making these ketone esters. And more recently, then some companies have begun to sell butanediol as its own individual molecule as a as a sort of exogenous ketone that, again, has generated quite a bit of interest because it's a lot cheaper than the ketone esters, which we know are quite expensive. And something that I want to point out as we're discussing the formation of these ketone bodies is that regardless of whether or not it's an endogenous, and again, a reminder that's something that's produced by the body or an exogenous, which is something that's consumed, both of them are going to continue into metabolism, right, by being converted essentially into acetyl-CoA and then going into the TCA cycle and continuing almost as if we were going through glucose oxidation or fatty acid oxidation. Yeah, it's a great point. I should have mentioned, you know, why are these being produced? And the reason is because they, in the case of starvation, the main uh, thinking there is that the, the survival mechanism is that the brain is experiencing a certain amount of low glucose availability. We need an alternative substrate to support brain metabolism. Free fatty acids can't uh, cross the blood-brain barrier, so there's a need then for another molecule. And it's the elevation of free fatty acids drive ketogenesis within the liver, which then allows a substrate to, uh, or, or, you know, fuel, for want of a better word, to, to get to the brain. So it turns out that many tissues within the body can use uh, ketone bodies as a fuel. Um, the extent to which they do so varies considerably. So again, in a brain, in starvation, it can contribute 50-60% of energy metabolism coming from ketone bodies. In skeletal muscle, it could be 5 or 10% on average, depending on the, the study that you look at. In the failing heart, it seems for some reason that the failing heart begins to rely very heavily or prefers to uh, uh, use ketone bodies as well. So there are, you know, again, across many different tissues and many different metabolic states, there are specific considerations. And I think that's where in this field there becomes a kind of um, a need to dig into the weeds a little bit because it does vary in terms of what organ you're talking about or what metabolic state you're talking about when we talk about preferred or dominant or whatever the, the, the word that gets used for, for ketone bodies and their use as a fuel. Something that I found really interesting, there, there's almost a, a parallel here. So we did an episode not that long ago where we talked about lactate metabolism. We were talking about a lot of the research of Dr. George Brooks yep. and pointed out that lactate is in a lot of ways a, a transport mechanism for glucose. Mm. So it allows you to, to take tissues that are producing a lot of lactate, it transported out of the cell, send it to, to other tissues that can take it up and, and use it, then take it into the TCA cycle. There seems to be almost a parallel here with ketones because ketones in the body are, are produced from acetyl-CoA, which is essential for the using fat for fuel. And it seems fairly easy to transport ketones. As a matter of fact, what really caught my attention is the same MCT transporters that transport lactate around the body 
are also what transport ketones. And once the ketones get to the tissue that can use it, particularly the brain, then it's converted back to acetyl-CoA. So there does seem to be a parallel that ketones are a transport mechanism for the Krebs cycle to keep this oxidative metabolism going. Well, and to further that a little bit, the primary source, Dr. Egan, as you pointed out, um, a creation of ketone bodies is in the liver, but the liver itself doesn't necessarily metabolize or use them. So it's creating them for other tissues to benefit, not for its own benefit. And it's in response to a change in, you know, substrate availability. So it's uh, it's a point well made. I don't have much more to add there. Just on a point that comes back to mind, though, when it, when we talked about it being a fuel for other um, organs, it's also worth pointing out that it's, it can also act as a signaling molecule. And I think that's probably where we think more about uh, ketone bodies as these so-called pleiotropic compounds. You know, the fact that they can do many, many different things in different tissues. It's not just that they act as a substrate, it's that they can actually affect metabolism in, in different ways within within cells by virtue of the fact that they can activate different signaling pathways. And there are activities around, say, things like protein synthesis, anti-inflammatory effects, that there's likely to be um, effects within the brain um, on that inflammation side of things as well. And so it, it, the, the point to make is that even things like epigenetic signaling or you know epigenetic marks can be impacted by an elevation in BHB concentration. So it is, um, it's a, much more than a substrate, as I think there's a, a nice review article that, that points that out. Yeah, and I think we're actually going to dive pretty deeply into that today, the, the whole role as a signaling molecule and, and how it can, it can help health. As a matter of fact, I think Rob and I talked about this ahead of the show, that that's actually what's more interesting than is there performance benefits to, to ketone bodies. I would wholeheartedly agree. I mean, in some ways, it's it's interesting, and in, because we of our backgrounds that we're interested in sport and performance, and you love to hear about you know novel things being tried and so on. But that uh, hype, and in, in some in some ways, you know, there's a controversy there because you know, as we'll probably talk about, the evidence for performance benefits isn't great. But in terms of the preclinical work and some of the mechanistic work that's been done around uh, therapeutic applications, there's a huge amount of, of positive findings coming out from there. So if, if someone said to me, you know, what's the most interesting thing about ketone bodies? It is more or less in the therapeutic application place, not, not necessarily in sports performance. So because people are finding um, potential benefits, like we said, we'll, and we'll talk about this on the performance side, there's potential therapeutic benefits. More and more companies, because they're becoming readily available, more and more companies are putting products on the market. I would love to talk, before we dive much deeper, about different types of exogenous ketones. You mentioned previously ketone esters. Maybe we can talk more about that. But I'd love to also um, discuss ketone salts and then raspberry ketones. <laughs> and you chuckle. <laughs> There's not much to talk about there. <laughs> I saw that in the outline and I was wondering who added that. No, I added that. I added that because I think that it's important, right? Because, and, and here's the thing, I'll just get it out of the way. Raspberry ketones are not ketones at all. And so people will market raspberry ketones for things like weight loss. And, and I'm not even going to discuss whether there's, you know, benefit or efficacy there, but I don't necessarily want people to walk into their local supermarket, see raspberry ketones and say, oh, this is what all those guys are talking yeah. about. I'm going to go ahead and, and take a lot of raspberry ketones here. Yeah. Totally different. So we got to dive into this because I need to know what these are. You've never seen raspberry ketones? I've never oh, seen raspberry ketones. You need ketones. to shop more. The Google algorithm hasn't uh, hasn't tried to sell you raspberry ketones from all your research yet. <laughs> oh boy! 
So this question of, uh, I guess it's orally ingestible exogenous ketone supplements, that, and that, that orally ingestible is a key element here because, um, you know, the, the research on ketone, on ketone metabolism and ketone bodies, I mean, it goes back a century. And even the study of metabolic effects of ketone esters, for example, was being studied as, as early as the, the 1970s. At that time, though, it, they weren't really available for oral ingestion. So then it was only in the uh, since the turn of the the, the 21st century that there that there's been this uh, availability of exogenous ketone supplements and really only as i said in the last 6 or 7 years have they been commercially uh, available and again the whole backstory as to how they were developed and so on is is interesting but probably beyond the scope of, of what we talk about today yeah so the 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 kind of categories that i mentioned there are the you know the ketogenic precursors like i said m, m medium chain triglycerides were being studied in the 90s for effects on on performance and they at that time weren't really being studied as uh, ketogenic precursors they were just being studied as an alternative to uh, carbohydrate or support for carbohydrate based fueling fast forward then into as i said into the uh, 2015 16 17 range and now there comes to be available ketone salts and ketone esters and more recently then uh, some developments on butane diol and so on so if we just take if we just ex- explain what they are so the reason why it was, you know, people knew that ketone bodies were, as I said, having many, many effects across multiple organ systems. Why weren't they a supplement before now? The reason was because it wasn't possible to get them in that orally ingestible form. Ketone bodies themselves are very acidic, um, um, so it's it's very difficult to ingest them as a free acid without causing GI upset and having negative uh, pH effects as well. So initially, some of the early work with ketone salts, so now we're define what ketone salts are, it's where you take a ketone body and essentially buffer them uh, by, by combining them with, with salts, usually calcium, magnesium, sodium, and, and so on. So the challenge from the, with the ketone salt is that when you ingest a, a ketone salt uh, in a quantity that would produce a meaningful increase in, in beta-hydroxybutyrate concentrations within the blood, you're also ingesting a large salt ion load. And some of the early work that we did and others did was finding that when you were trying to push the dose that you would use for a ketone salt in order to increase BHB concentrations, you end up getting a lot of diarrhea, you know. And so it's kind of a bit like the old sodium bicarbonate story, you know, it's too much too much salt, uh, you know, hyper osmotic um, load within the intestine and, you know, diarrhea ensues. Uh, and the ketone salts are, are still out there. And again, we could drill into more detail there if you want. The reason I sort of hesitate is that we have to then start talking about racemic and non-racemic uh, mixes and so on, which kind of gets a bit complicated. But let's just say that there are, um, let's say, more pure versions of ketone salts are now coming out that have less of a salt load and perform a little bit better. And it'll be interesting to see over time whether those become more widely available because they will be cheaper than the ketone ester and that will that'll be an important consideration i think as, as we'll talk about will i move on to the next one <laughs> let's move on yeah so so that's the ketone salts and again much of the performance research that we'll end up talking about is going to be the ketone esters because like i said it's not that they're totally ineffective ketone salts are, aren't totally ineffective for elevating ketone body concentrations but at the kind of prevailing thinking at the moment is that there's probably a threshold or a, or a sweet spot that ketone body concentrations need to get to in order for there to be a performance benefit. On the other hand, for a therapeutic dose, it might be a little less than what we think there. And so, you know, I, I'm not ruling out the fact that ketone salts couldn't be used in, in other scenarios. But from a performance point of view, the vast majority of research is focused on these so-called ketone esters. So to touch on that really quick, if I remember correctly, and I'm hoping you correct me because I'm going to be wrong, 
Ketone salts, we can see uh, an increase to about one millimole within the body. And then when we talk about ketone esters, it's in what, the three to five millimole range? Yeah, so a lot of it de- depends on the dose, but let's define actually, because I, I should have done that at the start, when just in the in the resting state, having eaten a meal, uh, ketone body, con- well, let's say BHB concentrations will be around 0.1 millimolar. And after an overnight fast, they might get up to 0.2, 0.3, 0.4 after 16 to 24 hour fast, maybe they get up towards 0.6.7 millimole per liter. And as you rightly say there, ketone salts at the dose that are generally used in the studies that have been published are getting around about the one millimolar range. So it's, it's it's a significant increase over resting and over say an overnight fast, but it's still less than would typically be seen on a ketogenic diet, which is typically in the kind of one to three millimolar type of range for people who are, you know, strictly adhering to a ketogenic diet. The one number to throw out here is kind of the official definition of being a nutritional ketosis is over 0.5. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. And like that, so ketone salts can uh, relatively easily get someone into, you know, acute nutritional ketosis, as it's called. But whether that would have a performance benefit, I think, is the the point that we, we might be debating here. But then again, you could argue, well, maybe even as you've seen the ketone ester work, even when the concentrations get up, above the one or two millimolar range is probably not having much of an effect on performance anyway. So it could all be a moot point. But um, in relation to uh, to your question, Rob, about the, um, the ketone esters, you're right. It, it's obviously dose dependent, but the ketone esters, you know, at the kind of st- uh, concentrations typically used in, in the research studies, which is usually around about 500 milligrams per kg of, of body mass. So basically like, you know, 30 grams, 40 gram type dose for, for the average size individual. They're typically producing ketone body concentrations of around about three to four millimolar at rest because we utilize a little bit during exercise that tends to be around two millimolar during exercise. So they're the types of ranges that we're, that we're getting into. So I think the, the, you know, the point to make there is that ketone salts generally don't get up to that level, whereas the ketone esters uh, do and they're kind of very um, predictable and, and uh, on a dose-dependent basis, you can really nicely tighter the uh, the concentration uh, of, of, of BHB if, if that's your goal. So, Dr. Egan, I got a bit over the weekend. Uh, I had read several studies leading up to this uh, recording, but decided let's let's read one more. So I pulled out a review that you had written in 2022 going, oh, I'll quickly get through this, opened it up. It was 43 pages long. Over 400 references. It would, I, I would say, it was a slightly thorough <laughs> coverage of of ketones and, and their impact. It, it was actually a really good read. But I actually made a note here because this is what I found most interesting. You talk about the the pleurotropic effects, and you say ketones have these benefits by modulating substrate utilization, inflammation, oxidative stress catabolic processes, and gene expression. So I I would love to dive into that because as Rob said at the very beginning of the show, everybody wants to talk about, well, do they help performance? But I'm not sure that's the interesting side of ketones. I think it's the health impacts that's probably the more interesting side of these. So let me throw that to you. I know there's there's been shown to be benefits in Alzheimer's. There's been shown to be benefits with cancer, with uh, oxidative stress, with inflammation. Let's uh, kind of dive down that road and, and talk a bit about that. 
Yeah, so it, it, it echoes the uh, the point that we spoke about earlier, which is just, as you say, these uh, these pleiotropic effects and the ability to act both as a substrate, but then also act as a signaling molecule. So in the case of, you, you let's take something like uh, TBI, for example, traumatic brain injury. So one of the hypothesized mechanisms there is that in the case of uh, of, a, of a TBI, there's a uh, you know bioenergetic crisis within the cell where effectively glucose utilization is, is not proceeding in the manner they would normally do. And that uh, deficit that's created might contribute to the severity of, of symptoms that follow a, a TBI. And in the, again, this is now preclinical research that's been done, but in, in that work that's been done, providing or producing exogenous ketosis through these uh, ketogenic precursors or through uh, the ingestion of exogenous ketone supplements, that can offset the brain energetic deficit by providing um, a substrate to the brain. So that's an example where you have a mo- the molecule or the or the uh, metabolic state potentially acting as just as a substrate, providing that additional fuel in a scenario where where there is a deficit. You take it then to a, another level where we we uh, published a, a piece of work um, summarizing the so-called anti-catabolic effects of of, uh, of exogenous ketones, and in that case, what we were talking, we were um, summing up some of the literature around work that had been done with the infusion of of ketone bodies. Uh, during either rest and ability to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, that um, um, p- uh, process that leads to tissue uh, growth is generally uh, the way people focus on it, rest, repair, recovery, that kind of thing. But then also on the on the flip side of that, be, by virtue of the fact that ketone bodies can act as anti-inflammatory signaling molecules, that that can almost blunt the uh, negative effects of of a of an inflammatory insult. On the body, and in the case of the work that we were referring to, it was showing that acute exogenous ketosis is blunting the inflammatory effect, and therefore reducing uh, signaling mar- markers to- that are catabolic in nature. So they're just they're two very you know two very different examples. One is as as a substrate in the brain; the other is as as a, um, a signaling molecule or an anti-inflammatory signaling molecule in muscle tissue. So again, just to illustrate the the broad range. And uh, in terms of organs, mechanisms, uh, and potential effects there, so I think that sort of sums up why there's just this interest in in the in the potential health benefits. Right, and something I found really interesting is looking at the impacts on cancer. So again, anybody who's interested, go back a few episodes and listen to that one we did on the work of Dr. Brooks, where we talked about the fact that something that's very necessary for cancer formation is to have your your cells in a, a state of proliferation. And there's a lot of recent research showing that carbohydrates, high glucose levels really promote that and is necessary actually for uh, the growth of the cancer cell. And we talked a lot about the Warburg effect there. So one of the things that's really interesting about ketones is, as you point out, they can replace glucose as a substrate for fuel, particularly in the, the brain and heart and some of the other tissues. So here's a potential way to continue to fuel important tissues without having that elevated glucose that can, unfortunately, do some of these negative effects. And, and not only that, Trevor, as far as I know, the ingestion of ketone esters and ketone salts will actually lower glucose within the bloodstream. Some of the early research that's put out there was on um, glucose tolerance tests and blunted response in uh, glucose within the blood. Yeah, again, very interesting lines of work there. So if I just started with a comment on the on the cancer side of things, it's actually probably an example of where um, there is some conflation of ketogenic diet and exogenous ketones. Like in, in the cancer domain, there's a huge amount of interest at the moment in 
ketogenic diets as adjunct therapies. Uh, and you probably come across this work. And again, quite controversial because there are some people who are obviously strong proponents of it. Others say that, you know, the evidence is weak and so on. And because I don't work in the field, I don't have a strong view as to who's right or wrong there. But the premise, as as you talk about there, Trevor, is this idea of potentially uh, starving the cells of the Warburg effect can have a you know can have a beneficial effect when combined with with other therapies. On the other side, though, if, uh, Andrew Kutnick, uh, who's who's uh, I've done some work with as well, he's published some interesting work with exogenous ketones now, not the ketogenic diet, exogenous ketones in a cancer model. And in that regard, what he, he's not really talking about the exogenous ketones impacting on the cancer itself, but rather on the um, catabolic, uh, the cachexia that occurs with with cancer. And so, because there's such a there's an inflammatory milieu that comes with uh, cancer, that the in his mouse model that he worked with, that you do see a blunting of that effect and a, an anti-catabolic effect of these ketone products. So it's a very interesting area, again, coming at it from a couple of, of different angles there. On the uh, glucose lowering effect, uh, Rob, that, that to me, again, is a very interesting area with one major caveat, which I'll get to in a, in a second. But there's kind of two ways of thinking about the uh, the effects that have been seen in, in those studies. One is that the uh, ketone bodies, if they're just taken in the, in the fasted or rested state, they will tend to lower blood glucose concentrations. The other is that if you if they're ingested with a carbohydrate bolus, they will blunt the rise in, in glucose that occurs. So from the point of view of, of say, for example, of a, of a type 2 diabetic or someone with impaired glucose tolerance, they're potentially lowering, you know, the concentration of glucose, uh, you know, in the fasted state or you know, that's technically not fasted, but you know what I mean, in the resting state, let's call it. But they're also then mitigating the rise that occurs. And there are several, there are several other therapies that are used in diabetes that try to just blunt the rise in glucose. So, you know, the use of fiber, for example, or the use of protein co-ingestion with carbohydrate-containing meals. So this idea of trying to, like, blunt the rise in, in glucose, the hyperglycemia, that's a quite an interesting area. So the, what was I, what's the one kind of caveat that I will give? The honest thing is that ketone esters in particular are really expensive. So, like, you know, a single dose is effectively $30, let's just say. And in terms of a therapy of, you know, comparing to say a, a ketone shot, let's say, compared to adding more fiber to a meal or, for example, a scoop of whey protein, which is also can, you know, have this modest lowering effect on, on, on glucose. That, that's where I think the, the application of exogenous ketone supplements in certain therapeutic situations is really going to be a problem because it's just way too expensive compared to other therapies that are already established. So there's quite a bit of work to do, I think, in, in that regard. Yeah, I remember six, seven, eight years ago, was it, when this all kind of hit the the sports endurance world and everybody wanted to try ketone esters, a new cyclist that uh, were trying to get involved in studies because these esters <laughs> were so expensive. They were like, oh, here's a way to get them and somebody else is going to cover it. Then they realized what they tasted like and they were they were sorry they volunteered. Yeah. <laughs> But no, it, it's true. Like, I mean, if, if you look at, um, if we say, you know, some of these studies that have been done where they've been an hour or two, let's say, in duration, and it's a couple of doses of, of ketone ester, that's about a $50, you know, let's say, uh, fueling strategy. Um, in the case of some of the recovery studies that have been done where it's been, you know, two or three servings of ketone esters in the post-exercise recovery period, and let's say you're doing that as, a, as, a, as an athlete several times a week, now you're talking about, you know, hundreds of dollars a week as a recovery aid. And again, that may be relevant to elite athletes who are seeking that 1% and can afford it. But then for the average member of the population, be, you know, the question is there, is there enough benefit to be sure to be needing to spend that amount of money? And then equally, are there other less expensive forms of ketone, exogenous ketone supplements that could have the benefit? But again, as I said, 
at the moment, the benefits aren't really, you know, often seen. And that, 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 that's certainly a, a major caveat. Let's hear from a couple ex-pros, Alex Howes and Kyle Reisinen, who were racing in the Grand Tours when ketones became popular. They have some thoughts on whether the expense was worth it, even at the highest levels. Ketones are interesting because I think there's, there's some potential there. And, you know, there's a lot of talk and a lot of hype. But for 99.9% of people, there's so much low-hanging fruit out there in terms of diet and nutrition and timing of food consumption. I think most people are better off just ignoring it. Yeah, these diet technologies that require hyper-specificity in terms of usage are meaningless for the majority of the population, right? Like if you're not weighing out your food and, and setting the timer between eating intervals and, you know, like recovery shake to carb consumption to intake of, you know, whatever other substance, like when it relies on the timing, forget it. Most people can't be that accurate. Yeah, I would say just figure out the basics first before you start throwing something like ketones in there. Are you guys seeing ketone like esters being used in the pro peloton? Yeah, but even then it's highly variable, different rider to rider, different team to team. And honestly, there was a big uh, to-do about ketones there for a bit. And everyone was talking about how ketones are making races faster and everything. And in my eyes, the reality was, was everybody just started eating more in general. I mean, it was only three years ago or so that everybody realized it's like, oh, wait, we can, if we do a, you know, a proper glucose fructose blend, we could just suck down gels all damn day, you know, and we can eat 80 to 120 grams of carbohydrate every single stage of the tour, 80, 20 grams per hour of every stage. Whereas when Keel and I first joined the Pro Peloton, it wasn't uncommon for people, to, you know, laugh at riders who had more than like five rice cakes or, you know, five paninis in a race. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah. You're just eating frangipans. And like, I would take gels like early in a race if the pace was super high. Right. You know, we'd be nuking it for the first hour and I'd, I'd, you know, pull down two, three gels in the first hour. And I, I had a director come up to me and he's like, look, you, this isn't sustainable. Like you can't do that. Like you're, you're gonna, you're gonna bonk in the middle of the race. You know, you gotta, burn the fat. And it's like, yeah, but we're doing a hundred, you know, 1100 kilojoules per hour for the first two hours. Like, I, like I can't eat a sandwich. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> so that big shift in nutrition, well, I think a lot of people attributed, you know, the faster racing to the ketones. I think it was 98% of that was people just consuming a, in my eyes, a proper amount of carbohydrate. The ketones were just sort of uh, the headline. Today's episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Alter Exploration. Created by me, Fast Talk Labs co-founder Chris Case, Alter Exploration crafts challenging, transformative cycling journeys in some of the world's most stunning destinations. Amatra is a powerful tool used to focus your mind on a particular goal and create calm during challenging situations. Our mantra, transformation begins where comfort ends. This mantra isn't meant to be intimidating. On the contrary, it should be invigorating. For many people, everyday life is filled with convenience, monotony, and a lack of time spent in nature. Alter Exploration facilitates the exact opposite. Challenging, invigorating, life-altering experiences in the natural world. Alter's journeys aren't so much a vacation as an exploration of you and the destination. At the end of every day, be preoccupied as much by the transformative experience as by the satisfaction of exhaustion. Life. Altered. 
Learn more about my favorite adventure destinations and start dreaming at alterexploration.com. So I don't know if this is in your area, but I am interested in all the research on ketones and Alzheimer's because there's a fair amount of research showing that Alzheimer's, there's a breakdown of glucose metabolism in the disease. And the problem that you have is lipids can't cross the blood-brain barrier, but ketones can. And brain cells can use ketones as an alternate fuel source. So there does seem to be some demonstrated benefits to ketone bodies in Alzheimer's. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, mechanistically, uh, as you described there, it it does make sense that this would be a valuable uh, therapeutic approach. It's interesting to me that there hasn't been a huge number of studies in this space using the um, the uh, ketone exogenous ketone supplements. I mean, it's funny that the best work that's probably been done is Stephen Kinane's research out of uh, uh, the University of Sherbrooke, and he's actually not using ketone esters. As far as I know, I could, he may have done some um, imaging work that did use the ketone esters, but when it comes to his, let's say, intervention type work, that's generally been done with uh, MCT type uh, formulations, but. You know, the evidence is pretty good there in that um, he is seeing positive effects with relatively modest changes in, in ketone body concentration. So, yeah, it does strike me that, I mean, maybe it's, you're right, it's it's not an area that I'm active in, so I haven't checked the clinical trial register, but it would be worth checking to see if, if there's anyone at the moment performing these types of studies using something like a ketone ester extended out over, say, weeks and months, because that to me is, is the obvious question. You know, if you have someone who's, um, you know, early onset or uh, showing, you know, mild cognitive impairment, whether um, an intervention such as this can mitigate the declines that are likely to occur. Again, I have a line of research around the study of older adults. And what you realize is that studying them for eight weeks or 12 weeks at a time doesn't tell you a huge amount that you don't already know that, you know, certain interventions work. The question is, like, if, if can they stick to an intervention and do it over multiple years and then can that mitigate the decline? Because, you know, that's ultimately what we're doing. We can't reverse things at the moment, let's say, in aging. Some people, some biohackers will tell you different. But in terms of the types of interventions that we use at the moment, it's more slowing the decline rather than reversing aging. That is the outcome we're looking at. I think that this is a great place to point out that nutritional ketosis through fasting specifically has been used for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years for the treatment of things like epilepsy. Right. And so as I'm tying this into the brain conversation, but I'm really doing this to point out something that I think is important. When we induce nutritional ketosis through fasting, there is a whole host of other things that occur within the body that may or may not put us into otherwise healthy or unhealthy states. And it becomes really difficult to suss out the difference between what is the effect of the ketone body and what is the potentially beneficial or deleterious effects of glycogen depletion, other signaling, hormone changes, so on and so forth. And what I find really interesting as we talk about exogenous ketones is we're much more able to understand the effect of this one particular substance as opposed to the hundred different changes that happen when you starve yourself and your body creates its own ketones. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And um, to to that point, we we published a paper, which uh, again, is it's open access. If your um, uh, listeners are interested, it's talking about the points of divergence and convergence between exogenous ketone ingestion versus the ketogenic diet, and in, which is kind of related to your point about fasting. The point I would make there is that, again, you have scenarios where you have some commonalities. So, for example, 
it's fairly well established that um, that appetite suppression is common to both situations there. So say a ketogenic diet and uh, exogenous ketone ingestion generally associated with a suppression of, of appetite. Whereas on the other hand, there's something very, very different about them, which is free fatty acid concentration. So a ketogenic diet will lead to a, an elevation in free fatty acid concentrations within the blood. Exogenous ketone ingestion is actually highly lipolytic. You know, one of the best established actions of, of ketone bodies is, is an anti-lipolytic effect. So when they're ingested um, in, in, uh, in acute form, they tend to lower free fatty acids uh, fairly dramatically. And that, that might actually, Rob, to go back to your point about uh, glucose uh, um, and glycemia, that might be a mechanism as well why, why they're having an effect. They're basically sensitizing the, the body to the effects of insulin by lowering free fatty acids. But so the, the point there is you can run through a number of different metabolic effects um, or metabolic responses to either the diet or to the ingestion of the exogenous ketone supplement. And it kind of brings us back to the question you opened with in terms of endogenous versus exogenous. You know, there, there is a, quite a difference between the two um, states. And it's important to keep that in mind when, when reading research in particular and trying to interpret what could be performance benefits or therapeutic benefits between the two different uh, approaches. Something to point out really quick, and I don't want us to go down this rabbit hole, we need to keep the episode going, but it makes sense that uh, ketone is lipolytic, right? Because ketones often occur at the end of beta oxidation of fatty acids. And so if your body is sensing the amount of ketone concentration and it's gone up, essentially this beta oxidation has done its job and we can slow down that process in which case we would want to slow down the breakdown of adipocytes or adipose tissue into a free fatty acid. Am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah, there has to be some kind of um, self-control, not the right word, but uh, we usually talk to them as a, about a negative feedback loop. In other words, you know, there's a regulation there. It can't just run um, out of control. So there's a kind of thinking at the moment that there is a certain concentration where lipolysis is allowed to proceed. When you exceed that concentration, lipolysis will, will be slowing down and it's kind of that's how you then strike this optimal balance between having enough free fatty acids around to drive ketogenesis but not having a situation where it runs out of control for for want of a better phrase. For anybody in our, our audience who, who's new to these terms who hasn't heard lipolysis before basically what we're saying is when you consume these ketones what we're seeing is normally your your dipocytes your fat cells supply a certain amount of, of fat for your your muscles and other tissues to use for fuel and that gets down-regulated. It isn't pushing out as much free fatty acids for the muscles to use. Likewise, you're also seeing a bit of a, a slowdown in glycolysis, which is your body's use of, of glucose for fuel. So it seems that it, it's going to rely a little more on these uh, ketones for fuel. And I know in your study, there was questions about that could actually hurt performance because ketones aren't used that much for fuel. I think it was only, it only provided about 10, 15% of the, uh, the substrate for uh, energy during exercise. And if you're, you're reducing lipolysis, if you're looking, reducing glycolysis, that could fatigue you essentially. Yeah, so the, the idea, I guess, is by having more of the ketone bodies around, you are providing uh, an alternative substrate. But the question becomes, is the body going to use that uh, during exercise? And, you know, what's fairly well established is that at, at sort of low to moderate intensities, the body can easily switch back and forth between carbohydrate and fat. They're the, the fuels we, we tend to focus on. But when you get to higher intensities of exercise, as you well know, particularly, you know, above lactate threshold and close to uh, to max, the body tends to rely very, very heavily on um, carbohydrate unless there's been 
a kind of a ketogenic diet, diet intervention or whether the person is very well tooled to be able to utilize fat up to, you know, quite high intensities of exercise. So the same kind of logic applies there in terms of, of ketone bodies. You know, and again, in theory, if you look at uh, some of the thermodynamic calculations and so on, they would be an efficient fuel to use in a cell. But in terms of what we know about, again, those oxidation rates that you mentioned or that percentage contribution, or there's some uh, cell work that shows that when pyruvate and ketone bodies are around at the same time, the skeletal muscle cells do prefer pyruvate. So this um, this kind of idea that ketone bodies would be, you know, get them really high, the muscle will just use them as, as a fuel. It probably doesn't work out like that because, again, at, at high intensities of exercise, there are probably good reasons why the body tends to rely more heavily on a carbohydrate. But the flip side of that is, as you mentioned, there are, again, mechanistic bases as to why high levels of ketone bodies in the blood getting to the muscle would perhaps inhibit uh, glycolytic pathways. And if you've got inhibition of glycolytic pathways, there's a chance that you're gonna your, your top-end performance is, is not going to... Uh, uh, reach where it should and I think that's where the fear or the kind of the drawback that some people will point to in terms of ketone bodies is that and high intensity exercise they're not going to be beneficial in fact there's a couple if not three studies now that show negative effects during very short duration high intensity exercise and again the thinking is now more evolving that if ketone bodies are going to be valuable as an ergogenic aid or as a performance aid, it's more than likely going to be at moderate or lower intensities, much longer duration of exercise challenge. So before we finally dive into that big uh, question of are they performance enhancing, which I think you've mostly answered, so it's not going to be a giant surprise. Are there any other impacts of ketone bodies on muscle metabolism? Well, it's it kind of, I, I, I briefly touched on what I mentioned about the anti-catabolic effect. So um, I, th I think there's, um, there's some interest in the area of the ability of ketone bodies to stimulate muscle protein synthesis as part of the overall recovery um, from exercise. And that to me is quite an interesting area. And uh, I often say if someone would give me money to do whatever ketone research I wanted, it would be looking at recovery. And there are, you know, there are a couple of lines of evidence. There's a, some interesting work that was done around uh, overtraining and the recovery from, or the, the adaptation, let's say, or the mitigation of overtraining symptoms. Um, and, and that's going back a couple of years now. But the model that was effectively used there was twice a day training for three weeks and ketone bodies used during recovery from each training session. And that ultimately allowing the ketone consuming group to, as I said, mitigate the, the symptoms of, of overreaching. But there have been a couple of other recovery type studies that have been done since then that kind of point to, and again, I would say the science is not settled on this by any means. We need a lot more studies, but there are just one or two markers that are pointing to something positive about the, um, the use of ketone bodies during recovery. And I think it could center on this idea that they may support um, sort of uh, growth and regeneration. Again, these are acute studies in the case of some of that mechanistic work. They need to be extended out into longer term um, training studies. But I think that's something where effects on muscle metabolism are, are, are of interest here. Let's hear from Dr. Paul Larson and his thoughts on the effects of ketones on recovery. I do believe there's a benefit for exogenous ketones. It will really depend on the context. But there's, you know, there's a bunch of work that I mean, for me, the, the big benefit that we're seeing now is in the context of the recovery phase after the workout. That's, I think, you know, we're, we're seeing, seeing the studies from Peter Hesbell's lab where we're seeing increases in uh, EPO, increases in angiogenesis, in better recovery profiles, less um, overreaching uh, symptoms. 
So to me, it's, the, it's, it's still early days, but it, the evidence is strong enough. And even the anecdotal evidence that I'm, I'm seeing from athletes and colleagues that I'm working with is there's a, there's a great benefit there uh, for more of the recovery phase versus the acute phase. There might be an individual response in the acute phase, but I think the big bang for buck is going to be in your recovery phase. And I think that this is a great way to segue into the performance conversation because as we discuss the ketones' potentially ability to improve uh, training load, to improve sleep, right? Uh, ketone ingestion prior to going to bed uh, seems to improve uh, REM um, duration and, and other markers of, of sleep health as well as increasing angiogenesis, right? The formation of new blood vessels. It almost feels like there's more supporting the long-term use of ketones as a supplement to improve training adaptation over time as opposed to the acute ingestion to improve performance right now in this moment. I think you're, I think you've summed it up very nicely there. I mean, it, it, sometimes I wonder, is it a, it, was it the circumstances, you know, that the the kind of uh, the hype that came out around 2016 and 17, where there was obviously the, the landmark study that landed in 2016, and then there was all the talk of Tour de France cyclists using them for performance, and it kind of snowballed from there. And like us, we got into it like, oh, well, if, you know, if people are doing, if athletes are using these supplements, let's, let's try out these performance studies and see if there's anything happening. And, you know, then we do one and someone else does one and all of a sudden, you know, and a PhD will generally follow a kind of a, a series of studies that are related. So all of a sudden, you know, it's, there's a several groups that are doing performance related research. Yet when you take a step back now and look at w- where is the promise, it's those mechanisms that you describe, but which all seem to be not actually in the performance space, but in the kind of recovery and adaptation uh, space. So in the review that you mentioned that we wrote in in, uh, end of last year, there's around about 30 studies now that have been done with exogenous ketone supplements and, and performance. And, you know, to sum it all up, there's probably a couple that have shown a benefit maybe one or two that people would claim there's a trend there or something like that. But like I said, for high intensity performance, there's at least two or three that show negative effects on, on performance. So the, there's been so many studies, they're a little bit different and little tweaks here and there in the types of studies, but there's no strong signal for a benefit uh, in, the, in the performance side. Yet of the small handful of studies that have looked at, say, recovery and adaptation, there's a, you know, I would say a lot more of a signal there in terms of a positive direction. So I think you've summed it well there, Rob. It's, that is where it looks to be a bit more promising. Yeah, I actually found it very interesting in your review because as I said, you, you reference over 400 studies here and you use the word surprising at one point in the study where you say it is surprising how much research has been done and yet we're really not finding performance benefits. And your conclusion, I'm just going to read this, is despite the mechanistic basis for potential beneficial effects of EKS, so that's your supplement, the evidence at uh, present is overwhelmingly against EKS being an ergogenic aid. And one thing that I do want to point out, and I'd love to get the, the researcher opinion on this, as somebody, and, and I have uh, used ketones in, in multiple forms, and I've talked about it on the show, I don't know that the current research is supportive of the benefit of acute ketone supplementation. 
and we can dive into that a little bit deeper. But, you know, unfortunately, one of the difficulties with research is that you have to design a research study that you're actually able to carry out, that you can control variables, that you can see significant differences between conditions. And almost the benefit of ketone does not necessarily lend itself to designing a study that someone like yourself is actually able to conduct. No, look, it's a great point. So let's um, try and unpack that a bit. So if there is, you know, a couple of studies that show a benefit or you look at the individual data points within a study and you see there's some people who seem to have derived a benefit, I think an unleashed athlete or coach who's curious might think to themselves, well, could that could I be the one who's going to respond here for want of a better word? And I think that could be where some of the anecdotal use of, of ketone bodies where there are, you know, there are prominent people who who do say that they derive a benefit. And there are clear examples of companies, sorry, of partnerships between, say, pro cycling teams and, and ketone uh, supplement companies as well. And, you know, there's athletes who talk about using them and there's athletes who are pictured using them and, and so on. Now, again, they could be doing nothing for all those people, but it does strike me as, uh, and I think we, we we wrote this in the paper, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a discordance between what the published research is saying versus the apparent prevalence of use among uh, pro athletes. So on, on one hand, the, the point that I was making is that any individual coach or athlete could take on a kind of an N of one type of experiment where they test their performance under a couple of different conditions by manipulating variables around the provision or not of, of, of ketone uh, supplements. And ultimately, if they're you know happy that they've objectively demonstrated a benefit for themselves, they may go and take them and, and uh, you know, that'll be the anecdote that we hear. And, you know, the mean value in the study may not show a benefit, but for the, you know, athlete who's using it and, and driving a benefit. Great, you know. But the, the other uh, piece, Rob, that you might have been kind of getting at there is that um, to do a study that we do, you know, we're limited, you know, the number one thing that we need to get is participants. <laughs> and if we set the bar as we want to recruit only people with a VO2 max above 70, you know, to mimic, say, a pro cyclist, for example, uh, in Ireland, very simply put, we have very few people who fit that bill who also want to volunteer for a research study to be poked and prodded and, and you know, give blood and have their training disrupted and all these other things that you need to do to standardise testing. So there, there is a chance, of course, that um, the researchers like myself and others are just not studying elite athletes. Uh, we're studying good athletes and we're studying athletes who could potentially derive benefit from, you know, various different interventions, but they may not be the athletes who who derive benefit from, from ketones because they're not fit enough. And to, to sort of underscore that point, you've probably seen the literature, and maybe you've covered on the podcast, the literature around nitrate supplementation and performance. And in that literature, it's kind of become uh, accepted now that the people who benefit most from uh, nitrate supplements and beetroot juice are the least fit. And the fitter you get, the um, less likely nitrate is to benefit performance. The opposite is kind of true here. Our, our hypothesis now, we've put it uh, into a couple of papers now, our hypothesis is slightly different here. If you look at mechanisms of, of um, the, so the pathways in, of, of ketone oxidation in skeletal muscle, they uh, their capacity and enzyme activity increases with training and probably correlates, again, there's one study with the small enzymes, but it looks like it correlates with um, type 1 fiber typology as well. A type one fiber dominance. So there's a chance, again, it's just a hypothesis that um, in the more elite and the more trained an individual is, they may be better able to utilize ketone bodies. And maybe that is where you would get your one or 2% um, improvement. But then again, that's just a speculation. Someone's going to have to do the research. And on that note, I'm going to point out, you've just submitted a paper where you've shown 
under particular circumstances or conditions, you do see a bit of an improvement in running economy and in, in runners using just a, a ketone supplement. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? We were interested in this just as an intellectual question. You know, most of the studies had been carbohydrate fed or carbohydrate feeding during exercise compared to carbohydrate plus ketones. And we were interested in the question of, well, what happens if it's just no carbohydrate and ketones are used. So we designed a three-condition study where it was carbohydrate alone, carbohydrate plus ketones versus ketone alone. And these were in uh, relatively uh, good runners. And um, we brought them in for, like I said, the uh, those those visits. And we did a graded exercise test with uh, five by eight-minute stages to look at running economy. So these were running speeds of 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 kilometers per hour. So, you know, not super fast, um, but you know, below threshold and enough, you know, a nice uh, graded steady state protocol at each stage in order to be able to look at running economy. And um, what we saw was that there was a, a decrease in oxygen utilization, so an improvement to running economy at all of the submaximal running speeds in the ketone only condition compared to carbohydrate only. And the ketones plus carbohydrate were, were, were somewhere in between. So, you know, we don't make any claims about what this actually means from a performance point of view because, you know, the running speeds are, are kind of slow and, uh, you know, it may not be practical to only consume ketones. But just as an, as an example of kind of going back to basics and asking the question, you know, there's not a performance measure as such. It's just, you know, this outcome measure that's a fairly good predictor of running performance, i.e. running economy, that does seem to be Im- impacted acutely by consuming ketones as opposed to consuming um, carbohydrates. So what people end up doing with that data, whether people go into sort of longer duration performance type studies like ultra endurance, for example, you know, it remains to be seen. But as from an observation point of view, it's interesting because the effect was around about three or four percent, which again is the kind of change in running economy that people go crazy about when they see these uh, carbon uh, fiber shoes having that effect. So it's, uh, yeah, I'd be interested to see how the field uh, takes a view of that research and whether it stimulates other people to do similar work. Fantastic. So I think that paper leads to something really interesting that was also in one of your reviews talking about the three potential ways that uh, ketone supplements can be ergogenic. So you just talked about one, which is better economy or efficiency. But what were the, the other potential ergogenic benefits that you can see from ketone bodies? Yeah, so we've touched on a couple of the mechanisms um, already here, but let's uh, we'll try and tie them all all together here. So you know, in the in the first case, it's a question of whether ketone bodies can be used as a substrate within the muscle. And as we we mentioned earlier, when they're provided as a source of as an exogenous ketone supplement, the evidence from a couple of studies now seems to say that that will ultimately produce around about a five to ten percent contribution to energy provision uh, during exercise. So it's not huge. It's a you know, it's still a small proportion relative to, uh, to carbohydrate and fat, but it does seem to be a contribution of sorts. So the question then becomes, how does that small contribution um, as an alternative substrate, how does that impact on overall fuel utilization? Or in the case of the study that we uh, did there, maybe it impacts on oxygen um, consumption. So one of the mechanisms, again, we, we hinted at this earlier when we talked about the fact that there are um, differences between the different substrates in terms of the so-called delta G or the Gibbs free energy for ATP that's produced by the different substrates. There's a difference in the amount of ATP that's produced per carbon molecule. There's a number of different, you know, very detailed biochemistry ways of looking at these different substrates. But the, the bottom line in all of that is that there is a suggestion that ketone bodies are a more efficient uh, fuel um, than glucose or fat 
when it comes to ATP provision. You know, these are things that are very difficult to measure. So we obviously didn't measure them in, in the study that I just described. But the concept, you know, in terms of if um, running economy was improved, it reflects the fact that oxygen utilization was less. And maybe that that has been explained by a small amount of oxidation of ketone bodies by the muscle, ultimately improving um, efficiency by reducing the oxygen needs. That that was the speculation within the paper. Again, didn't, remains to be confirmed, you know, in terms of those detailed measurements. And then the, the third mechanism that was um, that's proposed is around the uh, reduced reliance on carbohydrate utilization. So the idea here is that in many endurance sports, uh, carbohydrate can become limiting because of the nature of the limited amount that we can store within the liver and within the muscle. And that over, especially over longer durations of exercise, some people do have trouble consuming enough carbohydrate in the form of, a, say, of a sports drink in order to be able to support carbohydrate utilization at you know certain intensities of exercise. So there's been this idea, again, put forward as far back as 2016, that in the presence of, of uh, uh, exogenous ketosis, that carbohydrate utilization is is, uh, is the rates are, are less. In other words, so-called carbohydrate sparing, as, as what it's been called. But to be honest, if you look at the at the uh, evidence around that, there's only really two studies that have looked at carbohydrate uh, glyc muscle glycogen uh, concentrations within the muscle, and one of them showed that there was so-called carbohydrate sparing. The other showed that there was uh, no difference between the ketone condition versus the carbohydrate condition. So the jury is kind of out on that. Like I described, there are reasons why carbohydrate utilization would be reduced because of the effect on, on glycolysis that I, that I mentioned earlier. So it then becomes a question of whether you're, you know, kind of reducing utilization to the extent that's beneficial or whether you're reducing utilization to the extent that impairs performance. And that, again, is something that's debated because we've got evidence on both sides of the, uh, of the aisle there in terms of uh, in terms of those effects, so they're the uh, yeah they're, they're the three uh, uh, you know potential ergogenic mechanisms. A little bit of evidence uh, for for all three. A little bit of contradictory evidence uh, for all three as well. So again, like many things in this uh, field at the moment, there uh, there's quite a bit more work to do before we fully understand those. So we have three potential acute mechanisms. We talked previously about maybe a fourth mechanism that's a little bit more chronic or long-term, and that's improved recovery, improved adaptation, improved ability to handle training load. But I do want to bring in another potential acute mechanism for improving performance. And this is something that I experienced through my own uh, exogenous ketone use and is potentially backed up by a paper that came out in, in 2023 from Poffy. So I love seeing the research after I've experienced something. And, and, you know, I think the, the title of the paper um, really sums it up. Uh, exogenous ketosis increases circulating dopamine concentration and maintains mental alertness in ultra-endurance exercise. And I do want to bring out that performance is essentially multifactorial, right? We cannot describe who is going to win the race with laboratory tests. We might have a good sense of, we might be able to predict with some accuracy, but the fact of the matter is people have to go out and they have to compete. And because of that, these things like mental alertness can become really important. And for me to describe my experiences, I've trained a lot for multi-day mountain bike stage racing or other ultra endurance level exercise. And I will say I'm a very carbohydrate centric individual. Um, my background is as a sprinter, as a hurdler, and I've made the switch to being in these longer endurance things. And something that I notice 
I can crush, and we've talked about this, Trevor always like cries a tear when I tell him how much carbohydrate I take in during exercise. But something that I notice oftentimes is this sort of mental fatigue in addition to muscular fatigue. And that mental fatigue is, well, I'm a mountain biker. My reaction time just a little bit slower. I'm, I'm either not as fast or even closer to crashing. But also my mood can become a, a little bit more negative, to tell you the truth. I don't want to be out there anymore. I'm starting to complain. Oh, God, it's so hot out. My saddle's so uncomfortable all of these things. And what I have noticed when I have used an exogenous ketone supplement is that that mental alertness almost, almost comes back. It almost feels like you're taking a little bit of a stimulant. The world looks a little bit brighter. My mood is a little bit happier. And I'm no longer saying, oh God, I can't wait until I get home. I almost have this mental energy. My legs almost still feel exactly the same, but it almost flips kind of my outlook. And I do believe that things like that that become very difficult to measure, but can ultimately really impact performance. Look, a, a very uh, nice anecdote, and and one that I've heard uh, repeated by by many people who've used these um, these supplements. And as you say, they they can. It's a tricky kind of a thing to measure in in a research setting. So um, we have done some work, and I'll, I'll talk as well about the the paper that you mentioned shortly as well. Um, but we've done similar work because we were interested in whether there are cognitive effects of these ketone supplements in the context of, of exercise. So. One of the studies that we published a few years ago was um, a simulated soccer match. And the uh, that particular simulated soccer match involves having your participants run at various different speeds. It's quite cognitively demanding because they're constantly listening to beeps and being told what speed to run at. And it's back and forth and it's up you know, over this 20 meter track. And the reason I, I bring that all up is because you know mentally or cognitively demanding is important because Within that particular study, what we saw in the control condition, which is carbohydrate alone, was that there was a decline in cognitive performance over the course of the uh, the 90 minute protocol. Whereas in the case of the uh, ketone condition, uh, cognitive performance was maintained. So we didn't enhance performance, we just mitigated the decline that occurred uh, within that. And that actually, that pattern of, uh, again, there's various different cognitive measures that can be used. You know, some of them are around attention, some of them are around um, uh, task switching, others are around reaction time. There's a lot of, there's kind of different test batteries that tend to be used across these studies. But there does seem to be a signal there, to be honest, around cognition. And it's probably around mitigating a decline as opposed to enhancing cognition. You know, there's a, if you, again, you look on online, you hear some of these claims, it's, you know, ketones enhance mental clarity or they, you know, they improve whatever, you know, again, it's, it's hard to uh, sometimes reconcile those claims with the evidence, but we don't actually see an, an increase in cognitive performance. We just see a, a prevention of the, uh, of the decline. So in the case of, um, of the ultra endurance study that, that you mentioned, I mean, when I saw those results, I, I wasn't too surprised because like that ultra endurance is, you know, very, very demanding from a cognitive point of view. Just as an aside, we, we did, we did another study where it was just one hour on a treadmill followed by a 10 time trial and in that we didn't actually see any decline in cognitive performance even in the control condition and it got us thinking around this idea that you know maybe in order for there to be a benefit you have to offset a decline and in that case the exercise challenge or it could be it could be a non-exercise challenge if it's mentally fatiguing that's maybe where something like ketone bodies could come into effect and again through this use of exogenous uh, ketone supplements and the, the one other piece of, of color that i'll add there is that um, we've done a couple of studies now that are unpublished at the moment, but uh, hopefully we'll soon see the light of day around the use of um, hypoxia 
to cause cognitive decline. And what we see in those particular studies is, again, a little signal there that suggests that uh, using exogenous ketones as a countermeasure to that decline in cognitive function does seem to be effective in, in, in uh, acute hypoxia as well. So I, I think there's, a, there's a, a bunch of research coalescing around this idea, and I would, again, phrase it very carefully as mitigating declines in cognitive function as opposed to enhancing cognitive performance or anything like that. Um, and it, it'll be interesting to see how this field develops over the next while because I agree if, if you take the idea that performance is multifactorial and it's not all about muscle metabolism, um, then there are potentially other mechanisms about how ketone bodies might improve performance again in, in kind of in the ultra space and in those cognitively demanding um, domains. Finally, let's hear from Starla Tettergreen and the benefits she's experienced from ketones on her ultra-endurance gravel events. So I've used it experimentally just to see, yeah, if it makes any kind of a difference. And I feel like when I've used it in training is it keeps my energy more stable. Like I don't feel like there's any peaks and valleys. Like I feel it's more even, I guess, throughout the training. And so I've definitely found some benefit, but I can't actually say if it's just making it up or if that's actually how I felt. But I've always, I mean, I've never felt anything negative from it. And whether it's just a placebo effect or not, I think it is positive. I've taken it in the mornings before the workouts and then have the little liquid bottle that I take during the actual workout or during the race. So yeah, I've definitely used it in training and in racing and found positive effect from it. Well, guys, it's been a great conversation, but I think we need to start to wrap it up. Dr. Egan, you're new to the show, so you haven't had this experience before, but we like to always finish out with what we call our our one minutes, which is we each get one minute to summarize what we think is the most important message or the most salient point that we'd like our, our listeners to leave the show with. There are lots of uh, mechanistic reasons as to why ketone bodies could be effective both in the multifactorial performance domain as well as therapeutic applications. But the big challenge remains, I think, at the moment that the hype is often greater than the research uh, evidence that's to hand. And there's a big question mark about the expense of supplements and whether they will ever be of a, of a nature that's affordable, that makes them suitable as a, as, a, as a use as opposed to other lower hanging fruit that doesn't cost as much. I think that's that's the big needle we're trying to thread here with this with this domain is how to have benefits, but also being cognizant of, of the costs. And let's see where it goes over the next few years. I think that that's an amazing lead in to what I want to say is, yeah, there are big questions we don't necessarily know, even within studies, maybe there are responders and non-responders. But something I do want to point out is that um, as far as I know, uh, the ketone esters available on the market are considered generally recognized as safe, meaning it's very unlikely that they will do deleterious harm to your body. They might do deleterious harm to your performance, um, but from a health perspective, taking these is generally recognized as safe. And I encourage everyone, I think that there is a lot of naysayers who act like experts without ever actually trying it themselves. And, and I want to caution everyone away from that. It is money, I get it, but at the same time, it is just money. If you're interested, go ahead and try it. If it works for you, awesome. If it doesn't work for you, don't keep wasting your money. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying, I have no stock in any of the companies that are out there. I'm not going to push any one company over another. 
Um, but it is okay, and we talk a lot about experimentation on here. It is okay to do a little N of one anecdote, in my opinion. So my message is we often in the research really try to simplify things down to, hey, you take this, then you do a time trial, running, cycling, whatever type of time trial, and does it improve performance or not? And, and that's kind of where we leave it. I would say by that metric, yeah, you demonstrated pretty clearly that uh, probably not the thing to, to invest money on if you're, you're looking to take it right before a race and see some improvements in your race performance. But what I found very interesting about all this research on ketones is all the other impacts it has on our bodies, particularly the health benefits. So yes, the supplements are expensive, so you might want to look at some of the precursors or periodically putting yourself in a state where you're naturally producing ketones. But I think there are broader and, and longer term health benefits. I think there's recovery benefits. I think the, there is something to this. It's just don't waste your time taking it right before a race. Yeah. And it's early days. I think with time, we're going to understand that a little bit better, right? Yeah. Well, it's starting to be continued. We'll be back here in a, a year or two time, um, seeing what we got right or what we got wrong. Well, Dr. Egan, thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Great conversation. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Tweet at us at Fast Talk Labs or join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com. Learn from our experts at fasttalklabs.com or help keep us independent by supporting us on Patreon. For Dr. Brendan Egan, Dr. Paul Larson, Alex Howes, Keel Reinen, Starla Tedigreen, and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.